One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to the 2019 New Statesman podcast. We kick things off by talking about the... Quote-unquote migrant, quote-unquote crisis. And you ask us... Should the parliamentary lobby be scrapped? Happy New Year, Stephen. Happy New Year. Parliament isn't back yet, but we are. And I'll tell you what, there has been a huge crisis, hasn't there? Huge, enormous crisis. I don't know about you, but I spent most of Christmas patrolling the wall at Dover. The, yeah, you wrote in your column this week, which I thought was a good intro, which is the channel migrant crisis. Every word of that kind of deserves an asterisk to explain that it's not really... I mean, it is happening in the channel, you yeah, can see. Thing, it is at least happening in the channel. But How know, many people is it? It's like about 100 people on boats. It's about 100 people on boats. And we summoned back two clippers, which I thought was a type of ship we didn't have anymore, but apparently we do. Cutters. Oh. Cutters, there yeah. we go, not tea clippers, um, yeah. Yeah, clippers are the, the thingies that you can take along the Thames. So, yeah, it's most of them aren't migrants. They're refugees. It's not... A hundred people is not a crisis if that word has any meaning. But it is, I suppose, taking place in the channel. I think both you and Peter Wilby in the magazine this week pointed out that... I mean, Lebanon, at the time that Zan, our former colleague, went there, had one in four of the population was a refugee. Germany took, in the span of one year, took a million Syrian refugees, right? And various from other places... Turkey has hosted hundreds of thousands and has been paid, what, three billion yeah. euros to do so by the EU to keep them contained in the region. Uh, you know, Jordan has taken an extraordinary number. Like, in terms of the, the mass migration of, of peoples, 100 is like a sort of rounding error. So I think the numbers point is really important for a variety of reasons. The first is actually when you look across Europe, even places like Austria, which have taken on the most per capita, have had to absorb significantly fewer refugees. And because even though you may have language issues, particularly if you are, well, actually, if you're any kind of, of migrant, you mostly have quite a lot of social capital. So you are, in some ways... Well, lots of people coming language, out of Syria were kind of doctors fair, and yeah, university graduates. fairly easy to integrate into society. We're still talking about a smaller number than the number of people who immigrate into London every year and a significantly smaller number than the number of people who immigrate 
out of London you into the rest of the country. The number of overall asylum applications in Britain are lower than the number of people immigrating oh, to London every the, year. The number of people who have asylum applications to Austria who've had the most ah. per capita, about 10 million people in Austria, about, depending on how you count, 10 million people in London. Yeah, don't make me get John um, in to tell us how many people live in London, because um, that argument could last all day. The point is, right, these are not society or particularly expensively large numbers of people to take. However... And 100 of, people in the general certainly yeah, isn't, right? Of course, if you look at if you look around the continent and indeed the United Kingdom itself, the movement of comparatively small numbers of people clearly has been politically dislocative. It's an approximate factor in the emergence of League of Nord as the dominant force on the Italian right. Although I don't think it was the major driving factor in the Brexit vote, it was clearly part of the subtext of it. That was one of the things Vote Leave were aiming to do with their whole the Turks are coming, the Turks are coming, Albania is going to join, etc., etc. So the, the two major driving forces of this are political upheaval and climate change. Now, it may be that you can do something about political upheaval for a variety of reasons. However, given that it looks fairly likely than the new Brazilian president, as well as being a fascist authoritarian... A homophobe, is, yeah, a sexist. Is, yeah, is and are all round wrong, and frankly. Yeah, is also probably going to do some quite the major deforestation. The rainforest, yeah. um, so climate change is not it's a factor than we look likely at the moment as a global political whatever to Well, not least there are already parts of India that are experiencing record high, you know, high temperatures of 47, for yeah. example. Like, like There was a piece in The Guardian last year which I thought was fascinating about it. It's like, what does the city look like at 50 degrees? And that is, you know, the places that reach extreme temperatures in the next century will move to being places that have got millions and millions of people. Yeah. It won't just be the middle of Australia. And I think this, this is the thing, right, is that given the way that Europe has responded to these actually tiny numbers, it doesn't, I would say, make me feel particularly optimistic or non-terrified about the direction that politics will take when Bangladesh, population 161 million, which is below sea level, is underwater, and all of those people have to move. Most of them will move into India. That is not without politically dislocative mm -hmm. changes. And the odd thing is, is the politics of how these movements of people are dealt with in Britain is exactly analogous to how we deal with it in Europe and across the wider world. In that basically, everywhere that isn't a town in Kent, pretty much, it's like, well, that looks alarming on the news. We'll give you some money to deal with it. No, we're not going to let any of the people who've come here work, even if they have perfectly good qualifications. And uh, it's your social problem. And essentially, that is what most of the, well, particularly the United Kingdom, most of the, the nations who are not themselves directly within, you know, kind of migration patterns have gone, ah, oh, well, that does seem like a pain, but we've got a channel, so I guess we'll just give the Austrians and some Italians some money to deal with it for us. And basically, in microcosm, neither of those approaches to managing these very small movements have worked well. But on this, I've gone proper red string on the court board, which is that I believe it's an entirely confected route in order to hobble Sajid Javid's chances of the Tory leadership election. I think it's a cynical manipulation of a non-crisis. Gavin Williamson also, let's be honest, probably pretty excited about sending a boat in somewhere. That means that he gets to do something that looks kind of defence secretary-ish and macho. And, and Sajid Javid being forced to kind of cut short his holiday feels like a kind of I think as you wrote in the column you know he's seen as the current he and Jeremy Hunter the current front runners in that leadership race and it seems to me to have been slightly spun out of whole cloth really well so yeah I mean so I, yeah one cabinet minister before the break I went for went for, went for lunch kind of how you know well, what do you how do you think it's going and they said Sag is 
peak too early because if you peak this early everyone starts taking pot shots at you and if you're at the home office everyone is going to have loads of opportunities mm, the cursed department to, to do so now there's obviously an element of that and you know and all of the kind of oh you know he needs to come back from his expensive holiday in south africa and just like and do what look stern at his office which is basically what he's I have done. a big photo of himself taken behind his desk looking cross about stuff yeah so all of that is about the tory party leadership but i just think there's a board- bigger story here which is and something that rob ford who's professor of politics at manchester did a tweet about things that he was going to reappraise he did like a version of your blog post about you know what i got right and what i got wrong and so that he had underestimated the media's power because you know we can be very fashionable to be kind of cynical like oh you know everybody's not cheap or they don't just do what the media tell them but equally well we know that for example in surveys people drastically overestimate the number of muslims in britain right they just think that basically every other person is a muslim and you know in way out proportion to what the real figures are ditto i think the same thing about the we know that migration as a concern for people has dramatically dropped since the 2016 referendum but at the same time, well, overall migration has definitely slowed, but it's not fallen off a cliff because you know, we haven't left yet and all these other reasons. And I think that stuff is really interesting, that this does seem to be, you know, in a way that Donald Trump, incredibly cynically before the midterms, just kind of created this whole thing, the, the phrase migrant caravan, right? This idea that there were all these people heading for the border, which he then dropped as soon as the midterms were over. There is something there, I think, about the way that subjects are distorted to look much more, you know, much vaster problems than they are for cynical political reasons. Where did that story come from? Like, I feel like it was probably being briefed, right? In the same way that I felt very strongly with what, what was that Farago in Parliament? that we all got in the neck for reporting hugely large-scale bundlings about uh, Andrea Leadsom and the Speaker and stuff like that. And you were like, well, the reason that everybody was talking about that and tweeting about that was that being aggressively briefed and used for fundraising purposes by the Tory party. Right, this story does feel like it's kind of not oh, organically... Oh, the st- stupid woman gate. Oh, God, it's, that's something I had He'd left happily left happily in 2018. But I sort of feel like this story as well just feels like it hasn't organically arisen from people seeing boats and it has been gend up. I think that's partly true. There is, however, you know, one of the things I don't understand, and it, of course, may be the way that the rise of social media is changing communications in a way that really only the invention of the printing press itself is analogous to, but... The idea of migrant crossings clearly is... It's evocative, isn't it? As you saw when Nigel Farage stood out in front of that breaking point poster, which I don't think even represented what... I can't remember who actually, where those people were crossing particularly. I don't think it was they particularly... Were, I think they were crossing into Albania from the... From whatever's next to Albania. You know, someone said, I can't believe you didn't know where all the US states were. And over Christmas, I watched the episode of Friends where Ross says he won't have... I know you hate Ross, sorry. He won't have Thanksgiving dinner until he's named all 50 US states. I mean, so I... Let me tell you, Minnesota is often very hard to remember under pressure. I so, tried the game myself. So I'm, gonna, I, I'm not going to defend myself on my Albania brain freeze. Uh, yeah, Moldova? But... No, it'd be, basically it's you know, your frontier states into Eurasia. Because I think that's much less defensible because it's the continent in which we live. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I honestly believe that British politics would be in a better, healthier position. If I mean, there are people I follow on Twitter who are already tweeting about like, Elizabeth I mean, Elizabeth Warren Warren's announcement video or whatever. It's just like, guys, it's an election in which basically we all end up hoping that a candidate from the right defeats... The creature from the pit. Uh, I mean, like that, right. that's basically all American elections in the 21st century. It's not healthy to get 
I know, I'm already that. pre-bored of the fact that Donald Trump is going to basically, like, on day one, kill a child. Day two, say that, you know, snakes are evil. Day three, he's going to accidentally bomb Mexico. And then, But the whole thing will be like, well, on one side, that stuff. On the other side, is Elizabeth Warren really Cherokee? I just can't, I'm, all, I'm pre-bored of it. And I know I've got another 18 months of being bored of it. But yeah, there, there, other, other countries do exist, and it is perfectly respectable not to know where Arizona borders if you live in Europe. Okay. Is my, my take. I'm just saying, if you want to do that thing where you have to try and name all 50 states, I only got to 36 in the time required. And that's because I got... I was very excited when I got Vermont and Rhode Island, because let's be honest, they're not really proper-sized states. But then there's a lot in the middle that is really very hard. I mean, Kentucky. But I think what I find is bizarre about it, right, is I would be willing to bet I would find it... E- you'd find it easier if you got, you know, let's pick a group, not even a little bit at random... Political correspondence in the United Ki- in the Westminster <laughs> Parliament, the, the lobby, yes, to, to name U.S. states, yep. you would have a better chance of people getting it right than you would if you asked asked people to name all 650 members of Parliament, or even all 27 countries in the EU under time pressure. Um, yeah, and That'd the be a hell of a- <laughs> and the, the things. But those are both things which are just much more obviously things than people ought to know about okay well on that note of um we'll go away we should do maybe that should be our 2019 resolution we should go and do some like geography lessons it was always my achilles heel it will continue to be throughout 2019 burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now it's time for a section we like to call... You ask us! So this actually effortlessly segues. My segues have now got out of control to a point that I segue to bits which do not need to be segued to because they happen else. So this is a question that people started to ask over the break. Well, and people intermittently ask, which is top of mind because obviously I'm, you know, now political editor and I now have... Congratulations, by the way. I would let off a tiny party popper, but you'll just have to settle for me going, yay, instead. Um, I now have exactly no powers than I did really have before, but yeah, it's 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 You're very title. much the sort of Brexit secretary of the yeah. NS now. Yeah. Um, but it's nice to have the time. To- have, have a new shiny title i'm thinking of getting a hat but it's sort of top of mind for that reason which is should the parliamentary press gallery gallery be abolished yeah and um james ball who writes for us occasionally wrote about this over the break and actually when we did the deep dive podcast which Stuart Wood and ian leslie did for us they talked to laura kunzberg bbc political editor and some detail about this her defense about it was that you know because of the access even if you're any you know anybody you who's no, nobody you know you're the kind of lowliest reporter number six on the mirror you can go into parliament you can kind of grab hold of people and have a conversation with them you're whereas in more tightly controlled systems it's much more about who you know and actually access is much more controlled 
I'm kind of sympathetic to that, but I also am sympathetic to the idea that what it does is creates a kind of court stenographer role and a kind of also a bit of a Versailles. And I think actually you can make many of the same criticisms you make about the lobby as a physical entity, about, as about you can make about political Twitter, which is basically sort of the digital version of that, right? Which is that everybody gossips among themselves. They talk too much to each other and not enough to people outside. And that things become a, a thing just because everybody's talking about them and they're the kind of things that are easy to talk about, right? so stupid woman gate everyone can have an argument on that no one can actually ever finally decide what it was that jeremy corbyn said apart from jeremy corbyn himself so we can all have an opinion on it safe knowledge will never be debunked that is a much more sexy thing to talk about for an afternoon on twitter when you're quite bored and you can't really bother to go outside than it is to go and crunch through the latest like national audit office report into whatever yeah i mean so yeah it's something i've been thinking about because of this handover and you know how how i will in terms of the very limited things that I can change, what are the things that I will change about our politics coverage? One of which, of course, is the PMQ's review. George always did in a way which did very well, traffic-wise, a kind of like who, you know, who won match report approach. I don't particularly enjoy or like that um, It's kind of style. broken in the era when neither May nor Corbyn ever wins, right? They both, it's like Alien versus Predator. They just... Whoever wins, we lose, right? Well, I, yeah, the thing is, I feel that what tends to happen is that... So it doesn't shape the narrative of the week in the way that it used to, right? It's become a very different thing, so our coverage should probably reflect that. But I also think, I think even under Cameron Miliband, who are both very good at it, it's not a form of journalism that I'm particularly fond of. And obviously you then think about, like, well, you know, where do we do our journalism from? You know, you know is there a problem with the fact that, you know, Patrick and I are in the lobby, you know... Had a, so I, I realise I disagree with both the arguments we've talked about so far in that Laura Kay's sort of argument for it is, is great in theory but when you actually look at who the party leaders are interviewed by mm. they of course do control access yeah they take questions at press conferences it's always Laura first then it'd be like Faisal and then it'd be like you yeah. know Peston yeah yeah and yeah and you're one of the the great myths then it's very easy to buy into uh, as a journalist is this idea that you know in terms of like for example labor Kremlin, labor and lib dem criminology which is the thing that we do to an extent and a scope than very few other publications bother to do and it's very easy to start convincing oneself because i stephen bush am, am, am great and talented the reality is is and it's much easier to do criminology if the power players in it read your publication and are interested in having their intellectual and their criminological, as it yeah, were, Yeah, and they feel that your readers are people that they need to win over, uh, right? Advanced yeah. within it. But equally, all of those incentives don't go away if you physically move people. So, yeah, one of the periodic problems, of course, is that people in the press gallery, by definition, you do not become an expert on social policy or transport policy. This is one of the things I think is a really big problem, is ministers briefing something to a poll corps who is brilliant at who knows what about stuff, but is not necessarily the person who's going to be immediately able to read the complicated announcement and go, well, hang on a minute, this isn't new money. You've just reallocated something before, or whatever it is. You know, like like the Chris Grayling with the, the whole thing they had about the prison officers, where they were like, 7,000 new prison officers. And you're like, hang on a minute, like five years ago you just cut 10,000 so these aren't new prison officers this is like there is now less of a deficit compared with there than there was a decade ago yeah but the thing is right the incentive that incentive structure never yeah. never changes regardless of, of where someone physically is and actually for the most part there are two ineradicable problems one in terms of the physical location of our pmq's coverage it doesn't matter whether or not you had someone doing it watching a computer screen here or doing it in the office i think and obviously i will revisit this in six months time but i think an approach where you cover it from a well what has this 
support us mm-hmm. rather than well, which one of these one nil, two one, nil, yeah. one yeah. gets you a different result, regardless of whether or not the person who's yeah. doing it is there. There's a reason why, you know, for example, in Amber Rudd's first appearance before the Welfare Select Committee, before the thing that I asked Anoush to do it, because Anoush does mm. the bulk of our social affairs reportage, and I know she's across it. And I kind of think, in another way, this kind of like blame the lobby, move the lobby, is one of those ways that we talk about institutions and a lot of time institutions do matter and institutional change is more important than any personnel change but some of the time it becomes a way that we avoid talking about personal responsibility for coverage decisions made and not made one of the many things i like about patrick is that he understands that ultimately like yeah this kind of i can't remember which bbc correspondent it was but on the night that it became apparent that people were going to resign in large numbers over the deal this is Theresa may's post checkers uh, yeah. is it the november one mm. that she brought back yeah, yeah. they said oh and the third thing is the deal might not pass so first of all dominic rahman estimate of air out of the cabinet second Theresa may could face a challenge and the third thing is the deal might not pass I mean, we, like, <laughs> we, we may all starve to death i, in I think the thing which you could lead to stockpiling is probably the first thing right so okay how about this criticism because i remember having this conversation with Raphael bear late of this parish now at the guardian he wrote a great piece when we did our race in the media special and he focused a lot on the kind of the huddle you know the kind of idea that you kind of get together with other people and talk about the line about you know what is it that such and such a person really meant when they said stuff and the ways in which that could become be, be troublesome he also in that piece obviously mentioned the fact that the lobby is incredibly white and it's it's not just male dominated, but it kind of I think quite blokey in its sensibilities too. I mean, I say that from the perspective of an outsider. It's never been the kind of journalism that I've been particularly attracted to, so I've never been a member of the lobby. So that may be slightly unfair, but I think the kind of public school nickname kind of culture and stuff like that, I it, I, I find that a bit off-putting and also physically because it's up in the eaves isn't it the press gallery what about you know what's the disability access like you know all that kind of stuff that comes from working in in parliament i think it has a kind of quite an exclusivity to it that is i think when you're like when you talk to somebody like harriet Harman about the difficulty of getting quote-unquote women's issues you know covered then i think that was a lot more difficult for her in the 80s when almost all the parliamentary correspondents were men Right, they, they, they kind of because the, because there is a sort of pack mentality. It's very susceptible to if your pack looks very homogenous, then their idea about what the story is or what's an important issue and what's a sort of side issue will also be, you know, come from a particular perspective too. And that is no one's individual fault, but it is a, a facet of the way that it's structured. Yeah, I mean, so there are obviously the, the same physical problems of Westminster, you know, being hellish for anyone with any mobility, disability, etc, etc, are all. And it has then the same problems of journalism in the early 21st century, which is, you know, intense social verification. Um, yeah, everyone will have a degree, you know, everybody, I mean, I imagine most of the people voted remain because they're probably from that, um, you know, socially liberal background. Yeah, so, yeah. Based in London, obviously. Although, I, yeah, although, I mean, the lobby is definitely whiter than say the ns office but it's also definitely less educatively exclusive than we are for example that's interesting what because um, you've got sort of the old tabloid reporters who might have left school at 16 or... have some people who've left school at 16 you always have more people who haven't just gone to oxford right so i mean this is the thing right because the... that's the thing that Roman used to get me when i worked at first worked at the mail was that i started working and it's a long time ago now with a generation of sub-editors often who had come through local papers right and then therefore left school at 16 gone to work on their local paper at the time you know 
30, 40 years ago, you had to spend time before you were allowed to come to Fleet Street, like you had to spend time on a regional. And actually what that meant was that there was a more socially diverse group, and whereas now journalism is, like, yeah, like, you know, you say not just very graduate, but like very Oxbridge too. Yeah. And yeah, kind of in a weird microcosm, you know, it's the problem of like the, which you can easily demonstrate by walking into any newsroom uh, the day after an Arsenal defeat and seeing how many people are upset Sad. about it. <laughs> and you think, well, that probably shouldn't happen. And this is kind of what I mean about how I think some of the things that people, because in an odd way, right, it's, it's always easy to talk about things as a proxy issue. And I think some of the conversations that journal, British journalism has about the lobby are ways of kind of going like, let's talk about some problems we as an industry have mm. in a controlled environment that we're not in. I also kind of, so in terms of so the, the huddle, there are kind of, there's a conflation of two things. The huddle is not where people go, oh, what, the huddle's a bit where basically anyone can ask questions of the prime minister spokesperson or the leader of the opposition spokesperson. What then does tend to happen, and I am not proud to admit that I uh, have in a previous life done this, what then does tend to happen, particularly on, say, actually, this is an exa- actual example of something which did happen in 2015. During the Labour leadership election, the first and most fun of, of, of Corbyn's two leadership elections, I and Connor Pope, then of Labour List, were basically the only people covering it day to day. Whether it was at Westminster or, you know, some launch at some kind of, you know, social charity, you know, combining business entrepreneurship with rehabilitation, you know, yeah, of the kind that people do Labour leadership events at, uh, we would often be the only two journalists there. And inevitably, you do go, oh, how are you? How How's your folks? What do you think then the most interesting thing about that was? Because in mm. an odd way, right, uh, in terms of that Labour leadership election, if I had missed something particularly big, the only way you would know about it would be if Connor had spotted something yeah. particularly big. So you do have an incentive to kind of semi-conspire. You also, of course, have an incentive to beat mm. your near competition. So I think that kind of ends up working both ways right but you know all struck all institutional structures are prone to groupthink and it's there's it's certainly no exception but i kind of think again it basically comes back to what are the, your institutional mechanisms for challenge within your own publications because yeah one of the the big problems that has been really evident with a lot of brexit reporting is because as with all newsrooms people are kind of tied to their desk having to do six stories a day often six very good stories a day you do have taken you know, another concrete example, the reporting of the, the parliamentary arithmetic around a people's vote. An awful lot of it was based on people being like, but wait, are there any Labour MPs who wouldn't vote for it? And of course, there is but a that's, thing that, called You're right, that's an institutional problem about the fact that it's much easier to report what people say than it is to report things that are actually happening, if you see what I mean. And I think that's one of the big problems with political journalism. It can could just turn into a contest of claim and counterclaim. And it's certainly something that I think the BBC report into what they felt they got wrong in their Brexit coverage and in climate change coverage. You know, you fundamentally, like, things are happening or they are not happening. And, you know, things are, predictions have been made by a certain group of economists. They haven't. It's sort of irrelevant what Jacob Rees-Mogg thinks of it. He's literally some guy. And that's the, that I think is one of the big problems of, you know, the kind of that he said, she said kind of model of political journalism. Yeah, but it is, I think, yeah, again, comes back to wider problems with the industry. And one of the, yeah, so the other thing that I am very keen to change is, and for understandable reasons, it's very difficult for people here in base camp to see the work that we are doing that is not the production of copy. Mm. But 
it does mean that you end up in a situation where you go, this is another concrete example. Because, uh, particularly before Patrick arrived, when I was essentially in many ways a desk of one, I was having to work so hard, I didn't have as much time to get to know the 2017 Labour intake as I would have liked to early on. Which would mean if you said to me, kind of like, oh, what's the view among the, the average Labour MP about the war on drugs? I would be able to tell you. But if you want, what do the 2017ers think? Mm. I go, well, the Tories I can have a pretty good idea of because because of the internal ructions and I've mainly been covering in that party, I've mm. got a better grip on it. But I would have, I'm afraid I have to go like, no idea. I honestly do not know what the pol- politics of a large chunk of that new intake of Labour MPs believe because you're always incentivised, as with every other bit of journalism, to do pump, con- pump, pump, to pump. pump content. I think this is a huge problem in modern jobs. I've been reading um, a couple of things in the last couple of days about, there was a brilliant piece, I, mean, I can't remember, I think it was a Huffington Post about some, a woman who worked as a quote-unquote cable guy installing cable, right? And before that there was a piece on, I think, The Atlantic about a guy who used to be a sports journalist is now an Amazon delivery driver. Two jobs in which you have a you know set target every day. You have this many jobs you have to make. And what it does is it, it both those jobs kind of assume that there are metrics that can just be, you know, that every job is a lump of a certain amount of time. And what they, you know, the, the woman who's writing about being a cable guy said two things were holding her up. One was she was given the more difficult cases. This has always been the problem with stats into like, you know, heart surgery, for example, right? The surgeons often look like they're doing worse are often the ones who accept the hardest cases and which therefore have the highest failure rate. So actually, you have to be really careful in interpreting the stats. The same thing with these jobs that are very highly metricized. And as actually, what is somebody cherry picking these jobs? And then in case of the female cable guy, the bit that sticks with me, the guy's the Amazon delivery driver had said, look, I spend most of my time looking for something. You know, I'm, I'm in my 50s now. I spend most of my time looking for somewhere to have a wee. And eventually I ended up having to go in the back of the truck. And then the female cable guy was, was like, well, I'm having all this problem because I'm constantly driving around looking for a public bathroom as a woman, right? And these are the things that won't be taken into account when these jobs of the future where everything is about a metric, about individual circumstances that might stop, you know, that might, that you know, in the same way that gender is, or sex in this case, is, is a differentiating factor. And I think the same is really highly true of internet-based journalism. The kind of metrics only capture the thing that you're measuring and they often do it at the expense of flattening out everything else. Yeah. Sorry, that was a large ramble, but there was a point to it, which is you're right. You could either say Stephen's had a really great day today, he's produced six blogs, but that might come at the expense of Stephen has had a really great year in which he has broken X story because he nurtured this contact and developed it and it paid off in three months in the, you know three months' time. Yeah, and I kind of think that increasingly I just don't believe that getting rid of the lobby fixes any of the bad incentives in... British journalism and political journalism in particular, I, I just think the princess is in another castle. So basically what I'm saying is that it's not my fault, it's your fault. Well, what I would like to see that I think would really help is, again, better nursery provision in the Palace of Westminster. This is something mm-hmm. we talked about, something that the Speaker, for all his faults, did introduce and got rid of a bar, which there was much kind of wailing and gnashing of teeth about. And some positive action schemes. You know, we've run previously one for science journalists in the past. I know The Guardian have, have done stuff around BME journalists. But there should be... I'm not sure... The quality of opportunity is really not there. And it's a difficult system to fix because unlike a political party in selection of a candidates where they can say, this is our quota or this is our target, there's everybody is sending their individual people... And so what you'll get in the case of of women is everybody will send, you know, three people or up to five, six people, sometimes in the case of the really big organisations. And they might 
send five men or they might send four men and one woman but it just all stacks up and then the overall picture becomes incredibly unrepresentative and there's no way for anyone to fix that particularly when really what the issue comes down to in terms of sex I would say is about childcare and the fact that it's a job that often keeps you there really late at night with irregular hours you know you might just have to junk everything and unless you've got a very understanding partner that's a very hard thing to do when you're also caring for young children or elderly parents right so that's the thing. Don't scrap the lobby, we've decided. Scrap capitalism. Yeah, smash the patriarchy and end capitalism. Well, that's a nice note to start 2019 on. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Nick Hilton. Why not start the new year off right by subscribing to Stephen's Morning Call? Simply search Stephen with a PH, Bush Morning Call. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.